Hello and welcome to the November 2013 edition of the Lesbian Gay Law Notes podcast. Uh, before we go any further, if you're listening to us in iTunes, our general reminder, please take a moment to give us many, many stars. We have more listeners doing that these days. Have you noticed that, Art? Yes. You don't go to iTunes. You haven't noticed that. No, but you're my source. All right. So it's true. I'm Brad Snyder, Executive Director of uh, Legal, the LGBT Bar Association of Greater New York. And with me, as always, is Professor Art Leonard of New York Law School, the chief editor and writer of Lesbian Gay Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal and legislative developments. I'm out of breath. Affecting the LGBT community here and abroad. And we should probably start with... If you wrote shorter sentences, you wouldn't be... It's possible. It's possible. Um, My voice. We should probably... I'm I'm losing my voice a little bit. And you warned me about this last night, Arthur Leonard. You relentlessly forward-looking person told me that I should save my voice for this morning. Right. And why were we doing that? Because Legal was giving you a farewell reception as you leave as executive director to join the Lesbian Gay Community Center... And this is your last regularly scheduled Law Notes podcast. That is, but the podcast will go on. So to all our listeners, we're going to be introducing you to the to my successor, Matthew Skinner, who's actually potentially in this room with us. Potentially? Potentially. I see him. <laughs> Whether he joins the podcast right there. So I will just... Looming larger than life, less than 10 feet away. So I don't want to take up too much more okay. time before we dive in, but I do want to say, uh, Art, you, you know this. This has been one of the great joys of my time here at Legal has been starting this with you and working with you on Law Notes. And I continue to admire your... Your contributions to the community and your ridiculous work ethic. And I think all of our listeners will uh, join me in saying that we've enjoyed your work on the podcast and uh, your wit, which has helped to enliven every every one of our broadcasts. All right. With that, uh, such sincerity coming from Art. Uh, Before we get into the three cases, I wanted to take a moment. It would be weird, I think, to start this podcast, given the day that we're taping on here, uh, taping uh, in, in early what are we in? November? We're on uh, November 8th. There's been some marriage equality developments, and maybe you yes. could help our listeners just give us some of the big highlights of what's gone on. Well, the, uh, the front page title of the November issue of Law Notes is, and now, New Jersey. Marriage equality in New Jersey. Hawaii could follow as 15th marriage equality state. Well, our prediction uh, is correct. It looks like Hawaii will be the 15th, but uh, there is a race on. It could be Illinois. So just to fill in a little... Uh, At the end of September, as we reported in last month's edition, uh, the uh, Superior Court judge in Mercer County, New Jersey, Mary Jacobson, ruled that New Jersey same-sex couples had a right to marry under the New Jersey Constitution. And as the month was ending, uh, Governor Christie had asked his attorney general to seek a stay of that ruling so he could appeal it to the New Jersey Supreme Court. Uh, Judge Jacobson denied the stay, and the governor asked that an emergency application for a stay go to the appellate division. The Supreme Court reached out and grabbed it directly. Don't waste time in the appellate division. And on October 18th, the Supreme Court issued its decision, Garden State Equality Against Dow, holding no stay and saying it was very unlikely that the state would win on appeal, at which point Governor Christie dropped his appeal and the ruling by Judge Jacobson went into effect on October 21st, and same-sex couples started marrying in New Jersey, uh, making New Jersey the 14th state, plus the District of Columbia, to be a marriage equality jurisdiction in the U.S. And almost immediately thereafter, attention shifts to Illinois and Hawaii. In Illinois, uh, there is the so-called veto session of the legislature. Every year, the legislature convenes briefly in the fall to take action on any bills that the governor may have vetoed since their spring session. 
on whether to override. In this case, there was no override. The Senate last spring had passed a marriage equality bill. It hadn't come up for a vote in the House because the chief sponsor thought he didn't have enough votes. He said he'll bring it back during the veto session. So he did bring it back during the veto session, and this week it was passed by the House. And uh, they made a few little amendments, and so one of the amendments had to be the effective date of the statute because it seems during the veto session you need a supermajority to pass a statute to go into effect immediately. Uh, so they didn't have a supermajority. A normal majority, the statute has to go effect the following June. Uh, so uh, that was passed through the legislature and uh, approved by the Senate on the, on the small amendments that were made, a little fiddling with the religious exemption provisions. And the governor has announced that he's going to sign it into law on November 20th. And here's where the race comes in, because the governor of Hawaii had called a special session of the legislature to deal with his proposed marriage equality bill, which he introduced after reading U.S. v. Windsor and saying, hey, we're going to lose the lawsuit pending in the Ninth Circuit. So uh, the governor uh, called a special session. And in fact, as we're sitting here, the Hawaii House is preparing to meet for its final reading on the bill. Uh, two days ago, they approved it by a substantial margin. It was previously approved by the Senate. Uh, the governor is eager to sign it. Uh, they made The House made a few amendments, so it has to go back to the Senate. So the expectation is that today, November 8th, the House will pass it. Then next Tuesday, the Senate will pass it with the amendments, and the governor will quickly sign it into law. So Hawaii will probably beat Illinois if everything goes according to And this to will schedule. bring us a bit full circle with Hawaii yeah. as really the state right. where developments there. Hawaii uh, is the state that provoked the Defense of Marriage exactly. Act by its Supreme Court saying the same-sex couples might have a right to marry way back in 1993. So we're talking 20 years uh, in Hawaii, and uh, which makes it strange because uh, the hearings before the committees in the Hawaii legislature were podcast, were not podcasts, were uh, webcasts live and televised throughout the state. They allowed anyone in the state who wanted to testify to testify. They had over 5,000 people who signed up to testify before the House committees, and most of them did. Uh, they, they gave them two minutes apiece. They went quickly, one after another. Anyone who wasn't there when his number was called got one chance to come back. They went back through the, and if they didn't show up after two times, they weren't able to testify. And I listened to some of the testimony, and it's really strange. Some people said, well, this shouldn't be passed through a special session because we need more time to debate this. And I'm thinking, they've been debating same-sex marriage in Hawaii since 1993. <laughs> All right. How much more time do they need? That's a good point to uh, leave off on. All right. So let's, uh, let's go. Thank you for the, the update. Uh, let's go into the, the first case we're going to talk about. It's a case called... Uh, you always help me with pronunciation, Glossop v. Missouri Department of Transportation. Uh, the backdrop for this case is that Missouri law, uh, in addition to having laws that forbid same-sex marriage, right. both a both statutory a and a law. constitutional right. prohibition, they also have a law that says a surviving spouse of a public employee who is killed in the line of duty is entitled to a death benefit equal to half of the deceased employee's final average compensation. So why does that become relevant here? Uh, we have some rather um, upsetting facts, as these cases often have, which is a, a highway patrolman uh, dies, and uh, his partner of 15 years, I believe, is, is the survivor. This was a partner who was also largely dependent on, on the deceased partner uh, for... Because for, they were raising a kid together, and the partner yeah. was the primary uh, caretaker. So, so the, partner, the surviving partner goes and wants to put a claim for the, the death benefit. And... 
what do you think the local folks and the local officials do in Missouri? They say, yes, we will give you that benefit, or what else? What do they say instead, actually? No, they say no. No. They say no. They say, well, the statute says surviving spouse. And Corporal Dennis Engelhard and Kelly Glossop were not married because you can't get married in Missouri. They didn't even go out of state and get married, which they could have done. They could have gone to Iowa and gotten married. Uh, they could have uh, traveled a little further to New York. Well, not New York. Because Although, on that, on that front, Missouri, he was killed in 2009. Uh, uh, unlikely to recognize that out-of-state marriage. Is that well, correct? Well, that's an issue. Would Missouri recognize the out-of-state marriage? But uh, So Corporal Engelhard died. Uh, Kelly Glossop filed for the benefit. He was told, you're not married to him. Forget about it. Uh, so Glossop filed suit, and his claim was that he was being discriminated against because of his sexual orientation, because by requiring that survivors, only surviving spouses, legally married spouses, can get the benefit, the state had basically said that surviving same-sex partners can never get the benefit. So this is sexual orientation discrimination. Uh, the Missouri Supreme Court divided five to two on this. Uh, the majority of the court, in a procurium opinion, which means they were embarrassed by it and no one wanted to put their name on it. That's what procurium means. <laughs> Actually, it's just Latin for by the court rather than attributed to any individual judge. So the court said, this isn't sexual orientation discrimination. It doesn't matter what the sexual orientation is. Right. Any, the employee anyone, or who the is, survivor. anyone who's not a spouse, anyone right. who's not married. Is the issue is, are they married or not? And uh, the statute was passed in 1969. And the statute did not contain any definition of spouse. Uh, presumably the legislature meant a husband or a wife. Uh, subsequently, Missouri adopted its marriage amendment, banning same-sex marriage, and also made clear in its statutes that same-sex couples couldn't marry. So in 2004, the legislature adopted a definition of spouse for purposes of the statute, and they said a husband or a wife is a spouse. Uh, so... The court says, well, this, this isn't sexual orientation discrimination. This is discrimination on the basis of marital status. Can, can, we, can we pause a bit, though, on the, the, the argument of the court, the reasoning here, just yeah. sort of sounds very familiar, very formalistic about, well, this isn't right. actually about their sexual well, orientation. They, it's just about, I mean, they, they except pointed gays out, can't get married, so they, that, that's you know, a problem. There, there, right? there are a lot of heterosexuals who live together without getting married. In fact, it's just an increasing phenomenon in our society that uh, different sex couples live together in large numbers and tend not to get married unless they plan to have kids. Uh, and even then, not always. So, you know, there are a lot of unmarried different sex couples. And the court says, well, you know, the legislature just decided we're going to restrict this to married people. And it doesn't matter whether your surviving partner is male or female. It doesn't matter, you know, how long you've been living together, whether you have kids together or anything else. It's just they're drawing a line based on marriage. And so it's marital status discrimination. This is the majority. It's marital status discrimination. So now we have to look at whether the state has a rational basis for limiting this benefit to married partners. And they said, well, just as a matter of administrative efficiency, you know, it's, it's sort of easier to decide whether someone qualifies. They present a marriage certificate. They qualify. No judgment has to be made by any state official. It's administratively efficient. And that the state had a legitimate interest in being sure that dependents of public employees who were suddenly left widowed or, you know, without their, their main breadwinner would continue to have support. After all, their spouse gave their life 
Right. Public okay. Service. So that's the rational basis no, no, analysis. Rational basis. But the dissents, <laughs> I think they do something strong very strong dissent. Strong dissent, and they say yeah. at some point an equal protection analysis has to look at. I think it's the practical realities of what's going on here, and yeah. I think I think that's giving voice to the idea of of you know at some point it should matter that opposite sex couples who choose not to marry. And same-sex couples who choose who, who are not married, there's different reasons for that. And right. we already explained that in Missouri, they don't have the right to marry. And, so it's a bit of circular reasoning. And, well, we, we should also explain that the dissenter, of course, didn't mind being identified. It's uh, Justice Richard Teitelman. And he, he says, by tying the payment of survivor benefits to a definition of spouse that renders access to those benefits legally impossible to obtain only for gays and lesbians, the purported marital distinction is also necessarily a distinction based on sexual orientation. So he says this is sexual orientation discrimination. And if it is, then we've got to figure out what is the level of scrutiny for sexual orientation discrimination. And as to this, the majority did mention it in passing. They said, we don't have to decide what the level of scrutiny is because we've decided it's not sexual orientation discrimination. But they said, our Equal Protection Clause is interpreted coextensively with the Federal Equal Protection Clause. So the Supreme Court has never said what the level of scrutiny is, that they evaded that in Lawrence versus And by Supreme Texas Court, they mean Anthony Kennedy. U.S. v. Windsor. Yeah, they, well, they, the majority of the court that signed on to Kennedy's opinion. Well, I mean, this is just something we've talked right, about before right. about Kennedy, Kennedy not has, identifying. Kennedy has decided all these major gay rights cases without ever telling us what the level of scrutiny is by uh, using the rational basis test. Plus. You know, well, plus, it depends how you characterize it. But at any rate, the majority says... The court didn't decide in Windsor, the court didn't decide in Lawrence, and we don't have to decide, which is sort of nice because some lower courts have said, yes, the court did decide in these cases. It used rational basis, and therefore rational basis is the test. And uh, Judge Tidelman says, you know, why do we use heightened scrutiny? We use heightened scrutiny when we have reason to suspect that the legislature was acting out of bias. And, you know, there's this history. He said historic patterns of disadvantage suffered by gay people at the hands of the state, therefore there should be heightened scrutiny. And certainly the state can't meet uh, heightened scrutiny because the fit of dependency and marriage isn't tight enough. You know, in a rational basis case, the state can use marriage as a proxy for dependency, but he says not in a heightened scrutiny case. They have to show that there is a close fit, and they can't. He said that, that sexual orientation can't stand in as a proxy or marriage and, can't and stand in. And just to go back, though, you, you were talking about some of the positives. The majority uh, seems to hint at the idea that perhaps this challenge would have looked a little yeah. differently if it was a head-on challenge. Well, it depends. To the, you know, to the ban itself right. on, uh, what, on what theory? Marriage. What theory did Glossop proceed on? He proceeded on the theory that limiting the benefit to married survivors uh, discriminates on the basis of sexual orientation. And he didn't directly challenge the definition of spouse in the statute. He didn't challenge the Missouri Marriage Amendment or the statute in Missouri that limits marriage to same-sex couples. He said using marriage discriminates in this case. And the court said, well, you know, if he attacked those, we would have to confront the issue of whether the Marriage Amendment violates the federally... That, that it would certainly be about the issue of sexual... Another issue they pointed out, he said, if he and Engelhardt had gone out of state to get married, and they could have done it, there were one or two states that already had same-sex marriage uh, while uh, Englehart was still alive. They could have done it, and they were coming to us and saying that the re refusal of Missouri to recognize the marriage for this purpose violates their rights. We'd have a different question to confront. And they were careful to say, to, to say that we're not confronting that question in this case and we won't decide it. But they're hinting. You know, it could be 
that if a public servant in Missouri dies now, having married their same-sex spouse out of state, and this case went up, they, it might be decided differently. All right, interesting so, stuff. You know, this is a court that knows they're going to be confronting these questions in the future because of the increasing number of marriage equality states. So they're just saying, okay, guys, this isn't the end of this issue. Interesting. All right, we're going to leave that case there for the moment. We're going to take a short break. When we return, we'll be discussing a case out of Nevada concerning a lesbian's couple, uh, lesbian couple's dispute over custody of their child and the issue of whether a child can have two legal mothers. Stay with us. We are back discussing the case of St. Mary v. Damon, where the Nevada Supreme Court ruled unanimously that a child can have two legal mothers and that a co-parenting agreement made by two women before their child was conceived through anonymous donor insemination, with one woman providing the egg and the other being the gestational mother, can be enforceable, and enforceable as an agreement by parents who are presumed to have the best interest of their child at heart. So saying that in more simple form is that these two women who are now involved in a custody dispute over their child because the relationship has gone sour, can both be recognized as the legal parents of this child uh, based on some facts that we're going to get into. But in all these cases, Art, it usually um, things obviously go sour in the relationship, and then one party usually starts making some pretty um, not-so-friendly arguments about the legal rights of the other parents. So what went on here? Obviously, well, one of these parents is genetically related to the child, and one of them was the carrier for the child. All right, so uh, Shekela St. Mary and Veronica Lynn Damon. And they decided to have it together after they had been uh, living together in a relationship not too long, I think, in this case. And uh, the decision was that Shekela St. Mary would be the birth mother and Veronica Lynn Damon would be the genetic mother, which means that an egg was harvested from her was inseminated in vitro with anonymously donated sperm. This was done through a clinic. Uh, and then the child was born. Uh, St. Mary was recorded on the birth certificate as the only parent, the birth mother. And they, uh, at the same time, had signed a co-parenting agreement. And under the terms of the co-parenting agreement, they agreed that if their relationship ended, they would, quote, each work to ensure that the other maintained a close relationship with the child, sharing the duties of raising the child, and make a good faith effort to jointly make all major decisions. And I, I want to emphasize that for a moment, because as we were talking about off-podcast, off um, a lot of these cases we talk about how it would be good if the parties did enter into an agreement, right. just to enforce the understanding of the parties and everything. And here they actually did enter into right. an agreement that should have, one, one could argue, should forestall the types of arguments that we're going to be talking about well, here. Perhaps, but... Okay. Part of the problem is that family courts have traditionally said that agreements regarding custody of children are not binding on the court and are not necessarily enforceable, that in fact a court making a custody decision is supposed to make a decision in the best interest of the child regardless what the alleged parents may Although this agree. is not solely about custody. This is about no. simply whether the person is even is recognized, a as, a recognized as a parent. Okay, so the child is born, St. Mary's, St. Mary is recorded as the mother, no father is recorded, uh, they do a co-parenting agreement, then the relationship goes sour, and St. Mary moves out, leaving the child in the custody of Damon, the actual physical custody of Damon, who is the genetic mother. And Damon says, I'd like to get my name on the birth certificate. You know, I have the child here, and someone else's name is on the birth certificate. And St. Mary cooperated with her in providing an affidavit about the whole setup 
and you know how the child was conceived, they take it to court, and the trial court orders that Damon's name be put on an amended birth certificate as the mother, but did not order that St. Mary's name be removed because uh, that, the judge wasn't asked to do that. So now St. Mary files a suit for a declaration that she is the legal mother of the child. Uh, and the trial judge says, no, you were just a gestational surrogate. Well, this was a lawsuit just to establish that she had the right to, to visit in, in custody and so well, forth. Well, she was, she was suing for, you know, if she wants custody and she wants... Uh, right, but not to, not to make the argument support. that Damon has no rights whatsoever. Right. So no. Damon responds... The Damon biological response, mother, you have no right. Saying, actually, thank you for that affidavit spelling yes. out that I'm the biological mother. As the biological mother, you have no rights to anything to, to, with respect to... No, to as the, the gestational child. mother, you, you have no rights. No, no, rights. that I'm the biological mother, yeah, right. so I have the... David says, I'm the biological mother, and under the U.S. Constitution, a biological parent presumptively has a right to decide who their child has contact with, et cetera, et cetera, as against third parties, and you're merely a gestational surrogate. You're not genetically related to this child. So the trial judge here, much like the court, I, I'm going to editorialize, elevates elevates form, form over substance, substance and decides that St. Mary is just a surrogate. Is, right. a, is a surrogate as if this was an arrangement where they entered into a contract with a stranger who was going to bear the child. The, this person is a legal stranger to the child, right. is what the trial court And the trial up. court also said the co-parenting agreement is not enforceable. You know, taking the general approach that family courts do take to such agreements that you know, it might be useful for parties to put their understandings in an agreement, but it's not a legally enforceable contract on the grounds of public policy. Although it does, it does, sorry, well, I'm harping on court. this, but it yeah. does bear on the intentions of the party. Right. That's it, the point. It is certainly evidence of their intentions. Yeah. Uh, so the Supreme Court says, oh, the trial court really screwed this one up. <laughs> you know, and you can see, uh, well, I guess they, they weren't too unkind to the trial judge because after all, there was no appellate precedent. So the trial judge was in unexplored territory. But they said, we think the California Supreme Court interpreting similar statutes got this right. And the New Mexico Supreme Court actually has decisions along these lines also, uh, saying that in a situation like this, we're concerned about who were intended to be the parents at the time the child was conceived, and that uh, St. Mary was not a gestational surrogate. She was an intended parent, and that a child can have two mothers. This was a sticking point for the trial judge. Said, "How can a child have two mothers?" And the court said, "No, a child can have two mothers." Uh, in fact, uh, they didn't mention that in the opinion. But California has now legislated that a child can have simultaneously three legal parents, if uh, it turns out that the sperm donor also is intended to have a parental role for the child. So it's possible. Well, and on that point, though, it's worth emphasizing, this is not a situation in which this was an anonymous sperm right, donation. Anonymous. So this is why I think the courts in these cases, when they, they come out like the trial court did, um, I understand there wasn't precedent. But it, it's not as if they're worried in a genuine way about a second parent being out there. Right. It's if they decide that the child only has one, you know, that you can only have one mother, that child has one legal parent only. It's not as if the right. anonymous sperm, sperm donor is lurking in the and, background. And what happens right. to the child if that mother dies or something? It could go to some distant relative or something. That's right. Or, you know, into foster care. doesn't make any sense when there is another parent in the picture. Uh, not only de facto, but legal. Because remember, St. Mary's <laughs> name is on that birth certificate. And the court makes a big deal about the fact that in the prior proceeding uh, that was initiated by Damon to get her name onto the birth certificate, the, the judge in that proceeding did not order that St. Mary's name be taken off, that St. Mary remained a parent. It's possible to have two mothers simultaneously. Uh, so the court said it was wrong of the trial court 
to exclude from the hearing the issue of custody. Because the trial court did hold a hearing on visitation and did award third-party visitation to St. Mary. St. Mary said, well, I'm not just some third-party visitor. I'm the kid's mother, mm -hmm. her other mother. <laughs> and, and so the Supreme Court said, yes, you are her other mother. And so we're going to remand this case and direct the trial court to treat you as the other mother. And uh, they can make decisions on custody and visitation and uh, child support on that basis. It is worth noting, you noted, uh, you wrote this article, I believe, um, that circumstances have changed a bit in Nevada where there would have right. been more opportunities for the, the, right. the, Nevada, the legal relationship to be clarified. Right. And why don't you give Nevada us Nevada subsequently uh, adopted a domestic partnership law after the facts in this uh, case occurred. And under uh, the standard state domestic partnership statute, a uh, child born to domestic partners is presumptively the uh, child of both of them. Uh, they both will be considered parents. Since then, uh, Nevada has been sued for same-sex marriage, and although a federal district judge rejected the challenge, saying uh, he was bound by Baker versus Nelson, that old case from the 1970s about the Supreme Court, that said, I'm just a trial judge, you know, I can't contradict Supreme Court authority. Uh, so that case is on appeal to the Ninth Circuit, and briefs uh, I think either have been or are about to be submitted in that case, an oral argument will be held. And and held in a post-Windsor environment. Right, right, so, right. And in the Ninth Circuit, and we have to remember the Ninth Circuit is the circuit that held Prop 8 in California unconstitutional. So the Ninth Circuit seems pretty receptive to marriage equality arguments. Uh, so there might be marriage coming in Nevada. But we have to remember that there are a fair number of same-sex couples who have kids without... Well, and this goes back... Exactly. And the point that, uh, you know, obviously lots of people talk about how... To, to have some of these basic rights recognized and so forth, that the idea of forcing people to get married. To, right. to, and they shouldn't have to. And exactly. this, this case provides a precedent for saying they shouldn't have to get married, even if it's available, because under existing uh, statute and uh, case law in Nevada now, a child can have two parents who are not married to each other. That's right. All right, so okay. I didn't editorialize too much about this case. Not too much. Although I do want to say, I'm going to say it, it would be nice if in some of these disputes that the one argument that isn't made by the parties when they're at war is you are not a parent. Is the idea of using affirmatively some of these sort of historical in, inequities facing the well, LGBT community. You know, I, I think uh, someone who's in a custody dispute, they go and they retain an attorney and they say, let's win this. And the attorney is incentivized to make every argument they think might win the case. That's right, after telling them that, do you really want course, to do that? But of course, the attorney should consult the client about the arguments that we make. And the client should ultimately have a veto here. And, you know, a same-sex... Well, in some of these cases, you have a same-sex parent who has also changed their mind yeah, about whether they're gay. Most of those... A lot of the cases, that's a good point, we'll leave it there, are about people who've um, quite literally have found religion and decided that they're not gay, so that's no longer well, an issue. some of the cases. Some of the cases. All right. Some of them, they're someone who's found a new partner, and they don't want the old partner around. All right, we've covered we've covered all the ground there. We'll take another short break. When we return, we'll be discussing a federal case out of Alabama concerning the harassment claims brought against a gay supervisor uh, at a bank by a female subordinate. Stay with us. We're back discussing the case of Connor Goodgame v. Wells Fargo Bank. Uh, this concerns the U.S. District Court for the North, Northern District of Alabama, which has denied the sexual harassment and hostile work environment claims asserted by a heterosexual female bank employee who claimed that her gay male supervisor harassed her by talking, quote, about sex literally every day she worked at Wells Fargo. 
Now, we could leave it there, but I think we do have to give a little bit of detail on some of the things she says that her gay boss... Yeah, what was talk- he talking about anyway? Uh, this is direct quotes from the court. These are not our words. Um, let's see. He talked about giving good blowjobs, getting hit from the back by his boyfriend, his desire for bigger breasts so his boyfriend could kiss them, and um, what were some of the other ones? I think I think uh, he described who was the girl and the man in the relationship, uh, and um, this 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 crossed into racial uh, racial tones as well. Um, uh, he saw a, uh, a picture on the plaintiff's screen uh, screensaver. It was of her family. Uh, a couple of them were males, and um, he commented about. Um, well, let's leave out some of the, the, the. He commented about wanting to bite that. So, let's assume for a moment, as the court must hear, that actually what he said took place. Uh, right. These comments. So, well, for purposes of a motion to dismiss, you assume the correct exactly facts alleged by the plaintiff, as the court does. And so, oh, we we should we should give the fact that in all these claims typically, or in many of them, they involve, uh, you know, the plaintiff here. Um, Kanisha Connor Goodgame was ultimately terminated from her position at Wells Fargo. I think she only lasted there about a month and a half. Yeah. If I have and it she right. was making a retaliation claim as well as a uh, hospital environment. Right. So she gets fired. Obviously, the supervisor, uh, Anthony Washington, has a different story about the reasons for her being fired. They revolve around things like her refusing to uh, participate in training sessions because she claimed that she already knew. An excessive use of her personal cell phone yes. during work. Which I found to be the funny one of the funny parts of it because it appears that a lot of the – we'll get to it, but a lot of the comments that I just detailed were him talking – seemed to be him potentially talking on the phone to other people or to other people during the workday, right. making these comments. And yeah, the so, court mentions that, that she overheard a lot of these comments. They weren't directed at her. So excessive cell phone use, talking about getting oral sex in the workplace. Which one of those seems like the more troubling workplace activity? Well, if they're not doing oral sex in the workplace, it's not particularly troubling. Uh, the, the, the court said, look, this is unprofessional on the part of Washington to talk like this in the workplace is probably offensive, but is it so severe and pervasive that it affects her terms and conditions of employment? And one way of gauging this is whether, as a result of being subjected to this kind of talk on a regular basis, she was unable to do her work. You know, did it interfere with her ability to do her work? Is and it, she alleged that she was wrongfully terminated because she did her work just fine. And is that the right? Is it? She you, complained about his. All right, you're obviously an employment law expert. Yeah. Is that usually the way these things are framed? Meaning, I was struck by the idea that in the course of these lawsuits, the plaintiff's very act of asserting that they were a good employee who was able to do their work successfully is then used affirmatively against them when they claim that the conduct was so severe it well, affected their behavior. Yeah, but they have to show that it made the workplace uh, intolerable to them and it affected their ability to work. So I guess the court doesn't have the opportunity to take judicial notice of the idea that perhaps being subjected to hearing about someone's you know, sex life on a daily basis might be disruptive to the workplace? I mean, Well, part of the problem here is that this arises under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, which forbids discrimination on the basis of race, color, religion, or sex, or national origin. So the court says that in order to make out a prima facie case of a violation of Title VII, the plaintiff has alleged facts which would support the proposition that they're treated differently from other people because of their sex or race or religion or national origin. And evidently here she was overhearing comments that were just being made generally, not directed to her. All the people in the workplace could hear them, men and women, 
uh, was she singled out because she's a woman for these comments? No. Was she ever sexually propositioned by Washington? Well, no, he was gay. He was sexually propositioned. And the court seemed to have yeah. a little bit of fun in easily yeah. dismissing that notion. Right. In other words, well, there are two theories of hostile environment. There's the theory of the uh, supervisor who hits on employees for sexual favors, and then there's the supervisor who makes offensive comments or makes things uncomfortable for members of one sex or the other in the workplace. So the court says, well, we don't see the sex discrimination here. And in terms of hostile environment, you know, we don't see uh, that this is severe enough. Well, and your reaction to that, given the time, I made much of, perhaps too much of, in writing about this, the idea that... So many comments in such a short Well, it was time, like, yeah. what did I write? I think it was... It was like, daily. It was like 40 days this allegedly took place during, or 50 days? I mean, yeah. doesn't that seem I to mean, matter to this? this poor straight woman. She comes to work every day and is subjected to her supervisor talking about how he's boffing his boyfriend and all this kind of stuff. I, I don't think that's too close to the line to get us into the x-ray well, you, you could have said having sexual relations yes yeah engaging in intercourse well I, so i thought my reaction from a purely i'll just say it was a non-legal reaction which is is it really so strange to believe that in such a compressed period of time if all these things were taking place you're new to a job you walk in you have a new obviously it's a new supervisor you're just learning the the where the coffee room is and here you have a supervisor just non-stop talks about about sex. Yeah, I would find that objectionable. Right. Uh, so, and and uh, the court says, you know, you could find this objectionable, but we don't see that it violates Title VII. And as far as retaliation goes, uh, he came up with legitimate reasons. I mean, if she's refusing to participate in training, she's a new probationary employee, and she's refusing to participate in training, that's grounds for throwing someone out. Although one can imagine a scenario in which her discomfort, her making her discomfort known with his whole shtick talking about his sex life may have been incentivizing him to come up with a reason to fire yeah, her. But, but retaliation is only unlawful if it concerns uh, responding to a legitimate claim of uh, violation of uh, Title Seven. Okay, well one point you kind of hinted at already that we should talk about is, it was interesting here that the Alabama court, the very fact that this was about gay sex, I mean it seemed to matter zero right. to the court. And do you think that would always be the case? I mean, there seemed to be no hint at the idea that perhaps she was, there would be some idea of she was more offended because it was about the type of sex that... There was, there was no sense of that from this judge at all. I mean, the judge uh, is uh, Inga Pritz Johnson of the U.S. District Court. I don't know who appointed her. Uh, but, you know, I think we've gotten to the point in terms of uh, social treatment of gay issues and stuff that you know, this is not the love that does not dare to speak its name anymore. You know, people talk about gay issues. Gay issues are in the media. Gay issues are in politics. It's uh, obviously a supervisor who made comments like this 30 years ago would have been fired. Mm -hmm. uh, and now the employer tolerates it. And, you know, one of the things, if you read a lot of sexual harassment cases, and I read a lot of sexual harassment cases, because as I'm doing research for each issue of Law Notes, any case that involves a same-sex harassment claim comes up on my computer search. Uh, so I, I end up looking at a lot of them, and uh, it seems that there are an awful lot of supervisors out there who say an awful lot of objectionable stuff in the workplace that you would think employers wouldn't tolerate. But employers seem to tolerate a lot if they have a supervisor who actually gets the work done, keeps the employees in line. You know, it's hard to find a good supervisor. So employers are reluctant to fire a supervisor just because one employee is upset by what the supervisor is saying. So, you know, there's a, there's a whole balance here about... What are, what are the incentives of management uh, 
uh, in dealing with complaints about supervisors who may well, engage in hostile environments. As someone who doesn't read enough of these cases, I remain really amazed that this is... Believe the- me, I'm glad that you don't have to read... You know, reading these cases, your heart sinks sometimes with what employees have to put up with. <laughs> well, and the last thing I'll say, this is completely a little bit uh, off point... Um, you know, the idea that this is going on, like these are people working in a mortgage department, you know, processing, uh, I don't know, signing off on people's potential loan modifications when they're sinking under their house. Like the idea that this is going all uh, allegedly going on in a sort of major financial institution, I guess, for some reason, troubled me a little bit. In more. other words, every situation comedy on TV about office life is true. <laughs> <laughs> well, it all happens. Well said, although some offices don't do that. Um, not right. the gal's office. No, definitely not, not ours. With, not with you guys in charge. No, not at all. Um, we're too busy to get into this kind of stuff. Right. People have too much stuff to do. All right, we're going to leave leave it there. Uh, we're going to take a very short break and conclude with our Of Note segment. And I know Art is very geared up to provide his Of Note sec- section story that you're going to try to keep as PG-rated as possible. Yeah. I'm only, I'm only going to use five-letter words. All right. Yeah, stay with us. We're back to finish the podcast with Art Leonard's Of Note. Of Note. A three-judge panel of the U.S. Second Circuit Court of Appeals consisting of three old three old straight men, <laughs> average age 73, was confronted with this, uh, this question whether a guy who uh, technically violated his probation uh, can be required to go into a sex offender program where he's going to have to submit to a penile plethysmograph on a regular basis. A penile plethysmograph... I was just going to ask our... ...is a device that measures blood flow in the penis while the uh, test subject is viewing erotic pictures to determine what arouses him. Uh, This is a guy who was originally convicted of kiddie porn for making pictures, nude pictures of his 13-year-old daughter, which she said she asked him to make for her modeling career. Uh, (laughs) At any rate, so he was sent up into federal prison for a while and uh, in terms of his probation, you know, he had to report his current address and all this kind of stuff. He goofed up on the paperwork and was hauled back into court. And they were going to subject him to a lengthy prison term for violating his probation and the sex offender program and the penopolitismograph. And that was too much. And I guess for this three-judge court, the ick factor was just too high. <laughs> and they said, look, human dignity here. Even if we were to consider the purported correlation between increasing penis size and recidivism, as strong, the correlation would be irrelevant. <laughs> right. <laughs> good, really neat. good start. And great pronunciation, as always, Art. A plethysmograph. Yeah, it's certainly not the, you know, the other stuff. That's the word I was focused on. All right, that's all the time I, we I sort ha- of focus on recidivism. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that's all the time we have today. Thanks for listening. To read the latest issue of Law Notes, please become a member of Legal or a Law Notes subscriber by visiting us at www.le-gal.org. This and future podcasts can be found in iTunes, which you might be listening to right now, or at legal.podbean.com. And as I mentioned at the outset, if you can give us some stars, that would be wonderful. And before we sign off, once again, thank you to Brad for being the host and the questioner. And I was also the, the organizer and the creator. creator. I would like you to call podcast. me the creator. The creator. The yeah. creator. Yeah. I you're may the, you're want... the deity of Law Notes Podcast. I may want a credit going Okay. Forward. And to say hello to Matt, who's going to be coming in. Matt, Matt do you, you want to say hello, Matt? Matt? Hello. All right. So that's Matt. Matt, Matt, Matt was here. Matt usually, observe. he'll sound like he has a stronger voice when he's actually in front of the microphone. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. That's it. Thanks for listening.